John Eldridge uh, starts his new book with a story about camels. Camels, he says, have an Achilles heel. Their vulnerability is hidden by a legendary resilience. They are ships in the desert, carrying people and cargo across heat and sand for the last several millennium. They, unlike their human counterparts, can go weeks without water. But here's the thing. They will walk a thousand miles with seeming, seemingly endless endurance, giving you zero indication when they're about to collapse. And then it just happens. Suddenly they will kneel, fall over, and die. If you ride horses, horses tire bit by bit. You can know how much you can ask of them, but not camels. Eldridge then makes this connection. We humans have an Achilles heel too. Well, there, we have many. But one of them is we have this astonishing capacity to be resilient, to rally and rally and rally in the face of calamity, distress, affliction, and then, out of nowhere sometimes, we just collapse. We, we collapse into discouragement, depression, a blankness, numbness of soul. We, we push and we push and we push, and are resilient until we are not. Now, I want to pause for a second as we begin and do what I do, ask you to take an inventory. Now, we're nearing the end of 2022, almost three years since the beginning of the pandemic. A pandemic that will be remembered for so many things, but it is our generation's great war, a shared experience across the world of global trauma. The Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Ed Young wrote about it. He said the following, Millions have endured year, uh, two years of grief, anxiety, isolation, and rolling trauma. Some will recover uneventfully, but others, the quiet moments after adrenaline fades and normalcy resumes, may be unexpectedly punishing. When they finally get a chance to exhale, their breaths emerge as sighs. People put their heads down. And what do they have to do? But suddenly all these feelings come up. As hard as initial trauma is, hear this, it's the aftermath that destroys people. Friends, over the last three years, there have been enormous losses. So much of what makes life, life, joy, peace, hope, connection, has been lost in different ways and broken and even now, as I talk about it, I feel the tension in my own soul to be talking about it because it's this thing that we really want to stop talking about. It's been compared to what a prisoner experiences when being tortured. And, and we, for the last 10 months, uh, have pushed the world back to normal. And into this back to normal place, we've yearned for life to be good again. This place where we come back up for air and our life is filled with momentum and force. But here's the thing. We were running on empty before 2020. We were addicted to technology, overwhelmed by all the news across the globe, wrung out from social tensions, exhausted in body and soul from the madness of modern life. Alan Noble in his book, I've quoted this a lot lately, You Are Not Your Own, makes the argument that our world is hell-bent on making you your own. What he means is that even you meet, uh, you, you will believe that you are your, everyone you meet will believe that you are your own. 
Every institution will treat you like you're an autonomous individual subject to instrumentalization and valued for efficiency. The world, our way of being, is set up this way to get others to notice and affirm all the ways that we are our own. But this is not a way to be human. We're like those camels marching through the desert without water, facing adversity after adversity, and this is where the deepest despair comes. After adversity, when we are unconscious of being in dis- uh, despair. I mean, we've rallied and rallied, and every time you rally, you tap into reserves. And even when you feel like, oh, I'm doing pretty well on any given day, there you are still burning through resources and your tank is precariously low. This is the cycle. We face harm, both harms like pandemics and isolation and all the after effects, and then the harm of being our own in the world where we truly aren't our own and can't be our own. This is no way to be human. And then when the harm subsides or we get away and we find some rest, rage surfaces. Fatigue, anxiety, fear. Yesterday I watched parts of the Tennessee-Georgia game. Sorry, Tennessee fans, Cobbs, I know. But I saw political ad after political ad. There was one break where there was six political ads back to back. And nearly all of them were filled with what? Rage? Accusation? We've rallied. But the assault continues, and each new crisis adds fresh weight, a new burden. How you doing? How you doing with all that? I've met with many of you, especially over the last month and a half. And this seems to be the predominant theme of your life. You're fatigued. You're tapped out. Your reserves are gone. You're like camels about to fall over after a long trek and another long trek and another long trek through the Sahara. And so when Josh makes all those announcements, you're like, oh my gosh, bro. I don't got it. And relief is coming, we think, just around the next bend. So we rally but then the relief doesn't come. We can't really rest. Our kids keep getting sick, right? Am I right? I mean, if anything's worth an amen in this room, that should be it, y'all. Our jobs keep letting us down. Your church keeps asking for another thing. Our family needs us to be around, or your parent needs your help. Our friends are like overburdened and tired, so they can't offer support. They try, but it feels like it's just too late. And so you are beyond running on empty. When will renewal come? Rest? What is rest? As we come to our text this morning, I want you to sit into that, the reality of that. Now, what we just got out of was the the judgment fire falling, consuming everything around it. The judgment fire from heaven falls on the altar, 
consumes the water, the rocks, the altar, the whole thing. Symbolic of what? Well, it's symbolic of the 42 months of what life has been like in Israel. There's been 42 months of drought, and the water is licked up in the fire of God's judgment for the idolatry of Israel. Israel is still clutching at its gods, the Baals, the Asherah, clutching in hope that this might make life good again. And then the fire falls, and it falls on the altar, not the people, and Yahweh's judgment falls on the prophets of the Baals who are leading them into this idolatry of clutching after something that can't save them. And Israel, through all of that, is delivered. And this judgment then becomes what? Well, according to our text, it's the prelude to blessing and renewal. In the Bible, renewal is sealed oftentimes with a meal. Now, have you ever been to a marriage renewal ceremony, like when a husband and wife renew their marriage vows? Now, people do this for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes it's nostalgic, like on a significant anniversary. Sometimes it's retaking the vows after those vows have been lost or broken by an affair or after a hard season of trauma and brokenness. Either way, that covenant is sealed with a meal and a party. Here in our text, Elijah tells Ahab, go to the top of the mountain and eat. So he goes. Now, we're not told if he feels like eating. I mean, he has been a witness all day to a battle of the gods. That might make one famished. But he also just lost. His gods were seen to be mute and silent. And the prophets... Maybe even his friends were slaughtered. So maybe he's not really hungry. But the meal is symbolic of covenant renewal. Now to understand this, we go back to the first one of these. Well, not not technically, but when God calls Abram out of Ur, Abram, remember that patriarch in the Bible, Abram wants assurance of God's love for him. And God gives it first through sands and stars. He takes him out on a dark night in the desert, and he says, look at this Abraham, I will give you ancestors as many as these stars and this sand. But the assurance that God gives to Abram doesn't end there. At one point, Abram asked, how will I know, God? How will I know you will do this? And God says, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. And Abram falls into a deep sleep, and then, uh, or well, Abram cuts the animals into two and arranges them, and then he falls into a deep sleep. And the Lord says, know for certain. And then God, in the form of a smoke, smoking fire pot and blazing torch, walks between the two animals. And that's symbolizing that if God does not keep his covenant with Abraham, may what happened to these animals and being cut apart happen to God himself. And then the covenant is renewed. Now years later, when at least part of this promise to Moses is fulfilled in Exodus, the law has been given to the people at the foot of Mount Sinai, and Moses and Aaron have read the law day and night, and the people have made promises to God that they will obey God's law, then there's sacrifices, animals torn asunder, blood poured out, and then they eat and drink and have a meal together before the Lord. Covenant sealed with sacrifice and meal. Why? Why all this? Well, God says, this is what I am promising. If I don't fulfill my covenant, keep my promises, then may what has happened to the animal happen to me. And the people are making covenant to God, saying, God, we are vowing to keep our promises to you based on your 
promise. And so the people draw near to God through sacrifice, sins covered by blood. God has made room for them. He's invited them in. Now, hear this. Remember Ahab. He's like the, I'm a, I can't say, yeah, Kichijiro. That's Ahab. He's wicked. And yet, here, God is merciful to him and invites him back into relationship. And so Elijah, to seal the deal of that, says, eat. And so Ahab conforms to every command. He complies. Now, maybe he does it like our kids do it sometimes, not of happy of heart, begrudgingly. The text doesn't say that. He gives his complete obedience. And at least for the moment, Ahab seems like a changed man. And it's remarkable, right, how the heart of the king is suddenly made putty in the hands of the Lord. This is true, friends. Hearts can be made soft by Yahweh the Lord. Now, sometimes it is trials. Sometimes it is famine. Sometimes it is judgment. And then sometimes it's just the grace of renewal. Where, where God suddenly makes our hearts soft to him, receptive to him. Ahab obeys the commands of Elijah. That is no small feat. Remember, this day was to be the slaying of Elijah. He's been invited to this contest so that Ahab and his prophets can make an end of him. And at the end of this, suddenly Ahab is obeying his every word, repentant. He wants his life to be good again and sees maybe in part it might be through a return to the word of Yahweh. So Elijah tells Ahab, go and eat. And hear this, for there is a sound of rushing rain. Now what's curious about this, if you read a little bit more verses, right? There's no rain. Elijah hears with ears of faith. His hearing is tuned to the promises and the word of God. The rain hasn't begun to fall, but he hears it. Why? How? Because his life is so bound up in the words and promises of God. 18.1, right? Go, show yourself to Ahab, for I am going to send rain. And now Elijah, here's the reverb of that promise. The bass keeps running and running and running in the back of Elijah's ears. Faith shaped by hearing the word of God. The promise was the voice of the rushing of the rain. This is the prophetic imagination that we talked about in week one when we started this series. Are yours and I imaginations being shaped by the promises of God? Now think about that for, this, for a second. With where you sit this morning, trying to rally, full of fatigue, Maybe this is what we most need in this place of rallying on our own reserves. Maybe when we're depleted, suffering under the weight of drought of heart and soul and body, we need to have our ears tuned to the sound of the rushing rain. 
what would that sound look like for you? I think this is where Elijah is different than Ahab. He hears the promises of God echoing. Do you? When you are where you are, wherever that may be this morning, beloved, do you hear the sound of the rushing rain and the promises of God? In the midst, by the way, of three and a half years of not hearing or seeing rain. Like, like that is phenomenal in and of itself. Elijah hears the baseline. God will keep his promise. So Elijah goes to the top of Mount Carmel alone, bows to the earth, his face between his knees, and he prays. Now remember when the episode began, Elijah shows up on the scene in chapter 17 like the wind and announces, it will not rain in the land but by my word. And for three and a half years, there is no rain. And now Elijah comes to the mountain to pray for God to bring rain. Lord, you have shown yourself to be the one true God. Baal is silent. You speak fire from heaven. Now, please show yourself not only as the God who consumes, but as the God who provides life. Maybe that's what you need to hear this morning. So much has been taken, but God has brought you to this place Yes, your altars are consumed. The altars of your making, the altars in pursuit of prosperity, of making life good again, what you thought the good life was. And like Ahab, maybe you are living in the regret of that moment, wanting things to be new or different. There's something about us, right, as humans, the regrets. Like one of the things that makes life especially burdensome is regret. All those things that we couldn't do or didn't do or wouldn't do. And now we're faced front to front with it. We look in the mirror and we see those regrets. We're like zombies in The Walking Dead. The moment after we get bit. Regretting putting ourselves in such a vulnerable position. God has consumed that dream, that idol, that past life. And what you need now is life, renewal, a good hard rain to cleanse your soul, water to fill your parched life. And so Elijah prays. He, he bows himself to the, word, the earth. That word is crouches. It's the, the same Hebrew word used for Elijah's covering of the widow boy that we read a few weeks ago, where Elijah places his body over the Death, the breathless, death-filled body of the widow's son. And three times he, he bows over him and prays. And the breath comes back to the boy and he's raised from the dead. Here Elijah spreads himself over the earth and prays for rain seven times. Seven times. As the promise of the rushing rain is rushing through his ears. Seven times as he bows his head and body over the earth. The promises of God, friends, are invitations for us, the people of God, to pray. That's what we see here. The promises of God, Elijah has been told rain will come, and yet he goes to the mountain and he puts his body over the earth and he prays. Interceding for the earth, he prays. Why does he pray? Because of the promises of God. 
And as he prays, he sends his servant to be a watchman. Go and look, he tells the servant. So the servant goes. There is nothing here, my Lord. Go again seven times. Seven times the servant goes. And sometimes this is what you and I need. We need a watchman to look out on the horizon, waiting for God to answer our prayers. We are praying Waiting, praying, waiting, bowing our bodies over all the precious things that we've lost. We need someone to be a watchman. Maybe this is why Jesus appealed to the disciples in the garden before he goes to the cross. Can't you keep watch for me this one hour? There is something about our interdependent lives and someone waiting with us in prayer, checking in on us, praying with us, waiting with us for God to provide renewal and rain. We're, the renewal and rain we're so desperate for. And we're about to launch impossible prayers. What are you desperate today, friends? What are you desperate for God to answer? During Advent, we invite you to share those prayers so we your elders, maybe others, might be watchmen, praying the impossible with you. Leaning, we invite you to lean on us. Because we, imperfectly, are those who hear the rushing rain of the promises of God. And it is our desire to intercede for you and with you. Now, don't miss this, church. This is what the church is to be. We need those who, like Elijah, hear the promises. Because, because if we're honest, we are often tone deaf to them. We might not have the range. Like, have you ever gone to a hearing test? And you get these range of sounds. Some we can hear and some we can't. We need those who have the gift of faith that can hear what we cannot hear. And we also need the watchmen, those who keep going up and out, looking on the horizon for the answer to come. Those who are faithful to wait with us in the deserts often, by the way, of our own making. Those who keep waiting with us. Like, keep waiting with you in the middle of all those regrets. Even if it's the sixth such time, we've needed them. Now, I know so many of you worry about this. Like, I can ask for help one time. I can ask for prayer one time. But three times? Six times? Seven times? I can't keep telling them I can't get this right. Or I can't get over this thing. But friends, this is what the church is. We are Bedouin meteorologists scanning the horizon for the activity of God and relaying God's faithful presence to our friends in deep need, bowing our bodies over the parched earth, reminding you the Lord is near. He hasn't forgotten you, friends. So on the seventh time, the number of completion, the number of wholeness, on the seventh day God rested, said it was all very good. On the seventh time, Elijah prays and God responds with, behold, a little cloud. Now that little cloud could be like 
look like a little man's hand. It's unsure here in the Hebrew if it's a cloud that's so small that looks like a little man's hand or if it's a, hand, uh, a cloud that can be easily covered by the hand of the servant. Either way, it's small. And either way, it's a sign. Rain is on the horizon. Now, the promise earlier in Kings that King Solomon told, he told the people that if the people would turn back to God, repent, God would hear from heaven and send rain. And this rain would be a sacramental sign that God had forgiven their sins. Now, don't miss this. The rain is a baptism. The fire of God's judgment has fallen, and now the renewing waters of baptism have come. I love that scene in the Shawshank Redemption where Andy Dufresne crawls out of the sewage of Shawshank Prison. After enduring the horrors and the shames and the losses and the trauma, he is now free on the other side. And he stands up in the cleansing rain with his hands clenched, his eyes closed, and he looks up to the heavens. And there is redemption. Tuantaneo is on the horizon. The cloud, the small cloud, grows and grows and grows. We see every cloud here in the desert Nothing blocks our view of the clouds as they approach. And then we see the thunder. uh, uh, We hear the thunder and we see the lightning. And then the sprinkle. And then the downpour. And then the flash flood. Verse 45, and in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind. And there was a great rain. The wind, the, the ruach of God, the breath of God in Hebrew brings the rain of God. And the rain of God is a baptism. Now, Cadman's Call sings a song called April Showers. It says, rain, rain, don't go away. I know I've quoted Cadman's Call like two times in like a few weeks. So dating myself, maybe. If you haven't listened to Cadman's, you should, even though they're a mess. But you should still listen to them. Rain, rain, don't go away. We need you this dry and dusty day. Rain, rain, don't go away. Now hear this. Though some may say, please go away. What would make us not want renewal? What would make us not want the rain to come? What would make us want to run away from scanning the horizon and from praying? And maybe you sit there this morning in this place where you're still so much wrapped up and the clutching of different things in your life, that to let those things go would be so threatening to you and so hard. And yet the Lord keeps showing you time and time again that that thing that you clutch can't deliver you, and yet you just keep going back to it, and you just can't quit it. I can't quit you, you say. And yet the rain still starts to come. The message to those who have rallied and can rally no more, to those who have climbed through the river of sewage, to those whose idols have been slaughtered and consumed, to those who have trudged through the desert and then back again, to those of us who just want life good again, for the, the sweetness to return in some measure, to those praying impossible prayers with bodies prostrate over the earth, to the watchmen waiting for the clouds to answer. The message comes in the baptismal waters. You are the God who renews. You are the God who saves. You are the God that resurrects. 
life will fall again upon the earth. And James, the apostle, uh, uh, the brother of Jesus, writes about this scene in his letter in James chapter 5. He says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, hear that, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth, and then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, what was just before that verse, those verses? Verse 13, is anyone among you in trouble? Is there anybody in trouble here? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. A couple weeks ago, the Beersgreens called me and asked me to come pray for them just because they were so discouraged by the continual sicknesses. This is a f- what James calls you to do. Verse 15, And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, hear this, if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful. And effective. See the connection that James makes. Because sometimes I struggle to pray. I struggle to find time to walk through our church prayer calendar. If you did not know that, we have a church prayer calendar. We, we try to put all the names of families who are part of this church, all kinds of ministries that we're involved in, on that prayer calendar. And we invite you all to be a watchman. The ones who hear the rain are rushing for the people in the church. And James makes the connection when you are undone by life, in trouble, sick, lost in your sin, pray, bow your bodies over the earth, and the rest, and rest in the promises of God. Prayer invites you into the promises. And because of the promises of God, prayer brings healing, and prayer brings forgiveness, and prayer brings renewal. Jesus on the cross clutches to two things, promise and prayer. We pray because of the promises. God promised, so we pray. And then Elijah instructs, tells the servant of Ahab, Ahab, you better run. Get in your chariot because it's going to rain. And it's going to rain so much that if you don't go now, you will not get out. So Ahab goes to Jezreel. It's a ride of about 17 miles. And what does Jezreel mean? May God make fruitful. It sat at the edge of a valley. It was near the home of King Saul and also where King Saul, near where King Saul died. And Ahab's return to the land that God makes fruitful with the oncoming storm is the hopeful promise of new beginning. And the Lord is with Elijah. So he makes Elijah run like Forrest Gump. He was running. He tucks his mantle, the mantle of his anointing, the symbol of his calling as the prophet of God, The man of God who has the word of God tucks his mantle and runs before the king. Why does he run before the king? Because a runner is a herald. 
They would go before the king announcing the good news. The kingdom has drawn near because the king has come. Elijah runs to Jezreel to announce blessing. Yahweh has come. The king has returned to the land. Elijah is the true servant of the true king. And Ahab is going to be his rightful representative with Elijah as his prophet. Ahab receiving the words of the Lord through Elijah, the man of God. And it seems possible in this moment, the picture of a relationship rightly restored, the chaos of idolatry undone with the order of God's word in God's land, with God's king, with the people experiencing God's blessing. Now, don't miss this. How might we be renewed with the right order of God's word in our life, in our heart, shared amongst us as God's people, praying for each other, vulnerably sharing all the ways we are truly wrung out, inviting one another into the mess, the true mess of our life, stepping out in faith in the midst of our fatigue and terror, the terror of being more fatigued, the terror of being left unsupported, that keeps many of us from sharing our vulnerabilities. Right, that's part of it. Our fears that we'll be left alone, that no one will keep watch with us, that no one will hear God's promises on our behalf and share them with us. This is why other messages of promises are so beguiling. They're like sirens, like banshees who harp about this thing or that thing that might provide us relief and rest. And we have cloistered our lives away from others. And that siren call sounds so alluring. And what we need is to be with God's people, God's place, living with God's words, experiencing his rule and blessing, right order restored. So Elijah runs We're told with the hand of God upon him, under the direction of God, and with the news that the drought has ended and that the rain was coming, so you better get ready. God's presence is returning to the land. And with it, renewal, forgiveness. Israel's back in covenant with the Lord because the Lord is with Elijah. Ahab has received the mercy of the Lord. Ahab has been invited back into covenant with God. An offer of grace is in Elijah's hands. And friends, that's what we need today. Wherever we might find ourselves this morning, we need grace. The grace of renewal found in the promises of God. And these promises are bound up in the mercy of the Lord. And Yahweh's mercy points forward to a greater mercy to come in the person of Jesus. At Carmel, Yahweh shows him, shows the glory of his name. He vindicates himself over and against the Baals by sending a fire that destroys the altar that represents all our idolatry and all our worshiping of other gods. And in the fullness of time, when Israel again has turned to Yahweh, from Yahweh to its own ways, distorting and twisting again his good law for the sake of tradition, God will intervene again. And so Carmel anticipates that mountain, the mountain outside Jerusalem where the fire of God's judgment falls on Jesus. At Carmel, in the third year, Yahweh sends rain that renews the land. And in Jerusalem, on that third day, he raises Jesus from the dead to renew the world. At Carmel, the judgment of God is followed by rain. 
And at Jerusalem, the one who is baptized by fire on the cross ascends to baptize his disciples with the Holy Spirit, pouring out the Spirit like showers from heaven. Do you need renewal? Do you need life to be good again? Do you need to do something more to rally, only to be left burnt out and more fatigued than before? Then rest on Jesus, who brings living water. Lean on the people of God who hear the promises of God when you don't, and who pray for you when you can't. I'm inviting you this morning to voice your fatigue, to be honest about where you are, to own your languishing, and to ask for prayer. So today, I'm going to invite you to do that. As we come forward for communion, I'm going to invite you to ask for prayer. I'm going to ask David and Angela um, and Jenny and the elders to be available this morning for prayer. I'm going to invite you into it. No pressure. But if you need prayer, I'm going to invite you to lean on the saints who hear the rain rushing, who will be watchmen with you, who will pray for you. It takes courage to own your languishing, to own your burnt outness, to own being empty. But Jesus invites you to do so today. Even as you come to the table this morning, you're invited to taste grace, to exchange languishing for rest. So I pray that you would do it. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us to allow others to watch for God's renewal with us especially as we don't feel it, especially when our kids are sick again and my work asks for more again and I'm far from my parents here in this desert land again. We pray that you would help us, God, in these places to own our languishing and ask for prayer. We pray that you would help us to rest on the work of Christ like when we don't feel the wind of God's spirit, that we would recite the word of God back to you so that we might be encouraged that your wind will blow on us and bring your rain again. That our idols that we're clutching can't deliver. Help us to see that and cast them down and take hold of the grace that's offered to us in Jesus and at this table. We ask this, Lord God, in the name of Jesus the Christ, the true King, in his name we pray, amen.